What a good sport. Last time I preached at Bridgman, I mercilessly teased Ty, and I didn't even know him. So I apologize, bro. What a lovely, lovely young man. Fantastic. Hey, I want to do a little bit of therapy tonight, and I'm going to invite you. This is my therapy, and I'm going to invite you to join me on the journey. Uh, I discovered recently that I've never had to wait for too many things, and in the last sort of 18 months of my life, I've had to wait for a lot of things. Does anyone here hate waiting? I hate waiting. I thought I was all right at this, patience and things like that, until some serious things sort of came into my life, and I discovered I'd probably only give myself a 6 out of 10 on the righteousness scale of waiting in the last 18 months. I haven't done so well. And then uh, when Nathan asked me to preach, I thought, oh, I've got to do something Christmassy. So I opened up Luke. I used to, before I was a pastor, I studied history at university. So Luke's one of my favorite authors in the, in the Bible, uh, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament who wrote the most words in the New Testament. And he's a really awesome historian. So God gave him lots of space because he knew he was going to get it bang on. Anyway, so I went to Luke, and what do I discover that the, the first two people uh, who, we, who we find have had to wait their whole life for something? So I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to go into the Word of God. I'm going to try and learn how I can do better at waiting, and I'd love to share what I've discovered with you uh, over the last week or so as I've really pressed into God on this. Uh, just, just to give you a little bit of insight we were in America. We didn't know whether we were going to stay in America forever or whether we were going to come home. And God was sort of giving us some insights. And then uh, this job that I now have was suggested that it could be a thing 18 months ago. So I had to wait. I had to wait a long time to see if that was God's plan. Uh, and I didn't enjoy waiting right? I also had to pack up my family, sell everything, uh, and then put our prized possessions on a ship and pay a fortune. And they told me it'd just be about, you know, six to eight weeks and you'd get all your things back. Uh, my two favorite possessions, apart from my wife and children, are my, uh, my mountain bike and my road bike, uh, very sacred objects. Uh, and I, I've had to wait instead of two months to, you know, six to eight weeks. It's been like five months and I still haven't got my bikes, all right? I'm suffering, right? Uh, but I also have had some, uh, some serious ones. Have you, have you ever been let down where a really good friend of mine got hurt uh, and mistreated in the church? Now, I know we expect that everything's going to go perfectly in the church and that everyone's going to behave like Jesus and it's all going to go wonderfully. And uh, some people behave with, without integrity and, and bad decisions were made. And I prayed out to God and I said, hey, bring justice. And, and I expected that God would bring his justice the way I thought he should bring it. Has anyone ever had a thing like that? <laughs> and I prayed and I waited and I waited and I'm still waiting. And God hasn't done the thing I thought he should do. And it was really hard for me to watch a friend of mine be mistreated um, by people who should have known better and, and, and crying out to God on his behalf and not, not seeing justice that I thought should happen and, and, and having to wrestle with that and wait on the Lord. How are you going to act in this space, God? And that was really hard. And that's only been a, a, few, you know, a few months of that one. Um, in all that waiting... Really, for me, it's only been about 18 months, and I discovered that I wasn't very good at waiting. 
I started getting angry at God. I started wrestling with some of these things. Uh, I was probably a very irritable husband to my poor wife, Christy, uh, at some points there on this journey of wrestling and waiting on God. Uh, Now, fast forward to our passage tonight. We're starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I've only had to wait on God for about 18 months. These people have been waiting for 400 years. Does that seem longer? (laughs) I feel bad. I saw a meme the other day, and a guy said, 10 years ago, I could sit at a set of lights. Now I can't even sit through a red light. I'll get all antsy. We're we're so used to things being so fast on our phones and the internet and everything now that we we just hate waiting so much. We can't handle anything. Well, we're going to chug through this passage tonight. We're just going to go read through it. I'm going to make a few comments, and I hope that on the journey, you're going to see that it's really worth the wait to wait on God. Uh, And there's a way to wait on God where you can enjoy the journey even when he hasn't given you your heart's desire or he hasn't given you the thing that you think you should have. And we're going to look into that together. All right, let's jump in. Luke chapter 1 verse 5, the first line says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now you and I just read straight over that, but we shouldn't. Because if you were in this time and you saw in the time of Herod the king, your blood would boil instantly. You would get really annoyed just seeing that word on the paper. I want you to imagine, I don't know if you're highly political people, but if you are a highly political person right now, imagine the politician from the other team that you can't stand right now. I don't know if that's Trump or or someone else like that. I don't know. My American friends are laughing right now. Uh, But whoever it is that makes your blood boil, Herod made the Jewish people's blood boil even more. This was a guy that was a politician that would have really done well in our era. Like he was a shocker, right? If it was Romans hanging around him, he acted like a Roman. If there was Jewish people hanging around him, he acted like a good Jew, Right? He was actually not even Jewish. He was Umidian. I can't pronounce that. But he, he would uh, try and honor his own family when he was with them. But really, he was a piece of work. He was a piece of work. When push came to shove, he would do whatever it took to keep power. This guy, he killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed two of his brothers. And he even killed two of his sons just because he was nervous that he thought they might have been going to try and take his power. He was a piece of work. Once he was facing a court case because of all this behavior, and even Augustus Caesar made a joke about him in history, I love history, he said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Now, that was a little bit of an anti-Semitic joke. He was basically saying the Jews don't eat pig, so it would be better for him to be his pig than his son because he'll, he'll kill you if you get in his way. So this was a shocker of a man. In fact, he was so bad, one time he even uh, got a statue of a golden eagle to try and show off to the Romans so he could keep power, and he hung it on the temple, a temple that he'd built to show off to the Jews. Like, he, he, he was a terrible king. Because he was such a terrible king, religion and, and following of God was in disarray. God hadn't acted or, or seemed had to have not spoken or moved amongst his people for 400 years, they've got this terrible king, and they're waiting. And this is where we find ourselves at the start of the book of Luke. Let's keep reading. I don't want to get too bold. In the time of King Herod Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, once again, we might read over this a little too quickly. Uh, Luke is being super intentional here. 
First of all, we get introduced to the bad guy. Herod's the king. The world's a mess. But then all of a sudden, these four new names are mentioned, these four new characters who have entered the scene. And if you come from a Jewish context, you know that these names mean something. And God is so powerful in all of his planning and engineering of the whole history of the world that God puts pieces in the right places at all the right times, and it's always super intentional. Listen to the meanings of these names. Zechariah means God remembers, right? Uh, Abijah, that order, that means the Lord is my father, right? Uh, Aaron, it means mountain of strength, and Elizabeth means oath of God or God's promise. Okay, so we've got this terrible king, everything's turning to pass, it's not good, it's not going well, and yet in comes, God remembers, he is our father, he's strong and he's bringing his promises. So all of a sudden we get this sense that something's going down. God's on the move, something's about to stir here. So the passage continues. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. So here's an interesting thing. Zachariah and Elizabeth, we'll call them Zach and Liz for, for time's sake. So Zach and Liz were righteous people, but they had this deep pain point in their life that they were not able to have children. Now, in our society, we have progressed and, and we have a much healthier point of view on, on women conceiving children. Uh, we pray for it. We try and intervene with medical help. We do whatever we can uh, because we want people to have children. But if someone can't have a child, that's okay. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. But in this era, it was the end of the world. In fact, they had such a misguided uh, weight on this issue that if your wife couldn't conceive, you could divorce her legally. If she wasn't going to produce, you could just get rid of her and get a new one. But we discover that Zachariah is a good man. He's a good man because he is stuck with his wife. And they've carried this painful journey together. They want to have a child, but they're very old now. And they're, they're feeling like that ship has sailed. But nevertheless, they have what? sought after God. They have leaned in on following God, even though he hasn't given them a thing in their life that they had hoped for or expected, they haven't given up on God. And it says here that they were righteous in the sight of God. So the first thing we have to learn when it comes to waiting for God or waiting in our life is you need to position yourself for blessing. Have you ever noticed that some Christians seem to have a wonderful relationship with God and wonderful experiences of God, whereas some others feel like they don't get that? They don't get that connection with God. They don't get to see prayers answered. They don't get that same level of experience of who God is. Satan is going to tell you that one of them is a good person, the other one is not. But the truth is that the Bible paints a very different picture. The Bible paints a picture of a God who is perpetually and continuously seeking you out. He is always reaching out to you. He always wants to do business with you. He has, we're going to hear in a minute, lavished his grace upon you. What does that mean? Even if you keep screwing up, he is going to keep welcoming you back. 
because he desires to interact with you, to know you, to walk with you, journey with you, give you power, guide you and encourage you. God is always pursuing you. But we get very distracted. When God thought of the world and he thought of the human being, he said, I reckon you lot have got about six good days in you. And then you need to come back and be encouraged and focus on me again. And any more than six days, you're going to start making stupid decisions. Who's, who can attest to that? Anyone? You, you wander out of community for more than five or six or seven days, and all of a sudden, you, we start wandering away from God. We're very easily distracted. So the first thing is, if you want to wait on God, and you want to see breakthrough in your life, you've got to position yourself for blessing. I'm going to tell a story right now about when I scored the goal, and we won the grand final but it's not bragging because it was Division II Baptist League soccer, which means we all sucked and we were just having fun, right? Uh, So it's the grand final, it's extra time, the throw-in's coming from the sideline, I played centre forward, we're all over this side of the field, and I see Josh Dawkins, some of you might know Josh, and, and... I know, Josh, he's a fighter. He, he gets up there, he gets his head on the ball pretty regularly. And so I assumed, what if, what if the throw-in comes, Josh gets his head on it, it could bounce up and over into the middle of the field. So the throw-in came, I ran toward the ball, and then I sort of darted away, and my defender thought, what's this idiot doing? He's running the wrong way, you know? And so I ran around and scurried around the back, and sure enough, Josh had got his head on the ball. The ball had bounced in, and it was on a platter. We scored. We won. The other team sucks. It's written in history for the eternal time. Anyway, that's another story. What am I saying? You've got to position yourself in such a way that you can experience who God is. So a lot of us give up on God very quickly. When we're waiting and we want something in our life, even a good thing, uh, we're waiting, we don't, we don't wait well. We get angry at God, or we say, I'll take it from here, or we just go off on our own track, and we miss out on what God's trying to do in our life because we, we don't position ourselves well. Zachariah and Elizabeth positioned themselves well, and so God met them where they were at. It's super important that we position ourselves. This is not the power of positive thinking, This is based on who God is, right? Psalm 27 says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Not just when we die, not pie in the sky when we die. Now, I will see the the goodness of God in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That's what the psalmist sings to us. Position yourself Honor the Lord, follow Him. If you're out over here leading a selfish life, making up your own idols and chasing after things and asking God to bless your life, He will not because He loves you. He loves you. He's going to wait for you to come back and submit to His way of life. Seek His kingdom first. Put His goals first. Becoming like Jesus. Serving Him. Building His kingdom. When these things become your priority, you're going to position yourself where you won't have to wait any longer. He will start to speak. He'll start to move. He'll start to bless you. Uh, Do you have to be perfect? We're going to discover in a few minutes that Zachariah was not perfect. He was positioning himself to be blessed, but he wasn't perfect. 
In fact, he makes a big mistake in a few minutes' time. But look at this beautiful verse to encourage you. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has, does anyone know? Lavished on us. What does that mean? That means you could move away from God's blessing a thousand times, but every time you choose to turn back to God, boom, he's waiting for you. He doesn't make you earn your way back into his graces. He doesn't make you suffer for a while in order to pay the price for your poor choices. The Bible says he literally lavishes grace upon us. Think of it like a giant freeway. Have you ever missed your turn off at the freeway? And you're like, oh, now I've got to drive another 20 minutes that way. Well, just imagine God's freeway has an on-ramp every five meters. Every time you get off, if you just turn back to him, boom, you're back on. His grace, grace is unfair. So position yourself to be in the will of God and you're going to make the weight less painful. He's going to be able to deal with you and help you and move you forward. Let's keep, keep going in the story. Once, when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Now, just an FYI, there was about 20,000 priests at this time which means they had to all be set up into teams and then they had to draw lots to have their chance to do this. And if you read the history, they believe that it was very likely that you would be lucky to have this opportunity once in your life. Once in your life to represent the nation, go in at nine o'clock in the morning or three in the afternoon and burn the incense and pray prayers on behalf of the nation. Zachariah's number come up. This is like winning the lottery. It's like your whole life training to do this one thing and finally getting to go into... Now, remember, the temple was the most amazing building on earth at that time. And he got to go inside the temple, uh, into the holy area, uh, burn the incense and represent the Jewish people and pray to God. So this is pretty epic. He gets his chance to do this, right? Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, it says in verse 11, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I I love the Bible. I picture it a bit like this. He's come in to do his special thing. And then all of a sudden he opens his eyes. The angel's like, just off to the side. Hey, bro. Right? Uh, God hasn't spoken for 400 years. And then boom, an angel turns up. This stuff's happening, right? The New Testament, the New Covenant, the, the story of God's salvation is, a, is happening. Christmas is the best time of year for a reason, right? God is on the move. Uh, things are about to go down. And so there's this angel right there. Uh, when Zechariah, verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear like everyone usually is. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? Can you imagine your senior pastor, Nathan, can you imagine if he had one chance in his life to pray for you, to come in and pray for you as his church? Do you reckon he'd be on his A game? I reckon he would. I know Nathan, he's a good man. Like if he had one chance to pray for you, his people, 
he would be praying like, oh God, I pray that they would know you, that they would experience you. I pray that they would turn from their sin, that they would repent and, and, and receive the fullness of all it is to know. Like he'd pray a prayer like that. He wouldn't go in and say, oh God, I've got this bunion and my ankles are, my, his ankles are a bit dicky. Can you like fix that up? And you know, uh, oh yeah. You know, he wouldn't go in there with his laundry list of his personal items. He would go in and do his job because this is his one chance in his life to represent the whole people, right? So Zechariah, I believe, he would have gone in and he would have done the right thing. And the angel says to him, your prayer has been answered. But this is something amazing. When you're waiting on God, this is the thing I really want you to hear tonight. God's plans are perfect. His ways are so above us. We have no way of comprehending the complexity and, and just amazingness of who God is. And God has this ability that we just can only stand back in history and see what he's done and just applaud, that he can simultaneously be about to move and bring John the Baptist into existence to bring the whole sweep of salvation of the whole of history. He's on the move doing that one thing, right? But at the very same time, he's going to answer Zachariah and Elizabeth's prayer as well, right? He, he can weave it together. He can do it all at once. We could never orchestrate this, right? I can't even get my kids into the car at the same time, you know? Uh, it's, God is a genius. God is, his ways are so far beyond us. You know, uh, I was talking to a Jewish rabbi And he said, you Christians maybe interpret the passage wrong where God passes before Moses in the Old Testament to reveal himself. And he said, you can't see my face. And I've always understood that as, you know, God's too holy. We we would melt or something like, uh, you know, Temple of the Lost Ark or whatever it was. Uh, You know, you can't see God. He's too wool. Uh, But this guy said to me, no, 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 no. God was trying to say that you can only understand him by what he's done. You, you'll never work him out from the front side. You'll, you'll never be able to predict how God's going to work. He's, he's too, too big. He's too complex. He's too beyond us. He's too wise. Go and read Job, where God's like, Job, Job, you, you don't even know how the, the animals work. I know all of it. I know everything. And God's plans are perfect. We're waiting on someone who is perfect and he's so majestic and wise that he can weave the big things of the whole of history and at the same time answer individual personal prayers because he absolutely cares for each one of us as well. God is an amazing God. His plans are perfect. So we see the passage here. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine. This is a bit technical. It's going to be the Nazarite vow. You can look that up and do some study on that. Uh, So he's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is super technical, but basically, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth have been praying for a kid. Man, I want a kid. 
It's a good thing, God. You know, marriage, family, life, uh, business, success, experiences. These are all good things. And God says, pray for them. God says, ask for anything. If it's a good thing, I may even give it to you. But his plans are perfect, right? And they're praying for a kid. And now it turns out they're going to be having a prophesied person. They're going to be having someone very, very important in God's ultimate scheme of salvation. And, he, and he's re- quoting Malachi here. The last words of the Old Testament, the last prophecy said 400 uh, or so BC by Malachi, where God's going to turn his people back to their fathers. And the word Elijah means Yahweh is God. He's going to turn the people back to himself. He's going to have John the Baptist declare in the spirit of Elijah that Yahweh is God. And then everyone needs to repent and turn back. Why? Because he's preparing the way for who? The Messiah. And you'll notice that it doesn't say the Messiah or Jesus. They just all knew. He said him. And everyone knew who the him was, right? Uh, And so this is super cool that Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to be involved in salvation history. God's going to answer their prayer. God's perfect plans. Uh, And mystery of mysteries, wonder of wonder. He knows your name. He knows the hairs numbered on your head. He has a plan for you. He has good works ordained for you, already written out in his book, He loves you, and he has a plan for you too, like this. And the reason he's given us his word is we can see what he is like so that we can trust him, and then as we experience him, we'll have our own story. We can tell our family and our children of our own unique relationship with God, how he has led and guided us through history. And we will worship him because of how he's weaved it all together for his glory and for our good, Romans 8, 28. It's awesome. So while you're waiting, know that God's plans are perfect. They're not just all right. They are perfect. They're so good. Story continues. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Careful, Zechariah. Dangerous. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent, and you're not going to be able to speak until the day it happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. I was going to say the third point while you're waiting is don't ask stupid questions, but I thought it'd be better to say something more righteous and say, trust God, not yourself. While you're waiting, trust God, not yourself. Isn't the Bible funny? I find this scene incredibly funny. Uh, How do I know this is going to work out? God hasn't turned up for 400 years. And an angel comes and speaks to him. And he's like, well, you know, doesn't seem legit. I'm old. My wife's old. You know, he, he questions the angel. And I love the angel's response. Like, where were you five minutes ago, buddy? Were you down in Jerusalem? Down at the back abbey, were you at Bethlehem? Because I was in God's presence. And I'm here to bring you good news. Who here is a whiner? All right, a lot of you are lying right now. I don't think I've ever met a human being who is not a whiner. Just think about this for a second. God has given us all these precious promises, the Bible tells us. That's a direct quote. His precious promises. He said, I'm going to forgive you despite your sin. Isn't that beautiful? 
I'm not going to hold your sin against you. He says, I've got a plan for you. He says, I've got good works for you to do. He says, I love you. He says, I'm going to give you my very spirit. I'm going to embody you. I'm going to come in and be with you and I'm going to dwell with you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to leave you. He says, I've got a mansion for you in heaven, by the way. When you die, I will be with you. You will be resurrected. You're going to get a whole new body, right? It's going to be like almost this good. Right, and uh, he's gonna he's gonna look after us. He's gonna bless us. He tells us all these things. They're not just ideas; they're promises. He says, "Look at Jesus." If you're confused about whether or not I can do these things, right? He turned up on earth. He died. He rose again to display his power over sin, Satan, everything. And then, what do we do the minute one thing goes wrong? We get all whiny. And we say, I don't even know if I believe in God. I went to church for like six months. And he hasn't given me what I want. How do I know he's going to deliver? We get whiny. Don't trust yourself. Trust God. If you have to wait for God, sometimes you're going to have to wait for years. Years. But don't let those years be like lost in whining and depression and sadness. The Bible says we can rejoice always. It says we can have perfect peace, not because we know how to do our you know, moments of mental thought and deep breathing activities, because of the truth of what God has promised us, we can have ultimate peace. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can have joy. We can practice thankfulness, not based on whimsical ideas, but based on the substantial works of God in our lives. So don't trust yourself and your own feelings. Trust God while you're waiting and keep seeking his will. Keep following him. Keep living according to his principles while you wait. Don't ask dumb questions. You're actually allowed to ask dumb questions. He's actually so gracious. You know, he gave us the book of the Psalms. You're allowed to complain to God, but keep going to him. Keep going to him. And make sure by the end of that prayer, you've turned around and put your faith back in him because of all the things he's done in history. Trust him while you're waiting. And then Satan won't be able to steal your joy. By the way, when you are struggling with something and God has not behaved the way you'd hoped or thought he would, and you get that thought saying, is this all real? Is it worth it? Stuff this. I'm just going to control my own life. I'm just going to do it my way. I am very sure that nine times out of ten, that is not your flesh. That is the evil one. The Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is active. And any time you have a thought that says, I just want to give up on this and I want to turn my back on God, that comes from somewhere. And guess what? You don't have to have the power to fight it. All you need to do is say, Oh, Lord. Help me follow you. And boom, his power will come. You have a heart inclined to the Lord, he will move. And he'll give you another moment in history where he's proven his power and proven himself true. And so don't don't let Satan steal your joy or steal your life. Don't become a whiner. When I grew up, we called them whinging poms. We said the English over there in England, prisoners of Mother England, that they were all whiners and Aussies were all friendly and happy and laissez-faire. I reckon we've stolen the mantle. I reckon Aussies are complaining more than ever. We're all angry in the cars. We're just like very, very aggressive these days. Like we don't need to be like this. 
We have a God who is for us, not against us, the scripture says. That's not an idea. That's a promise. That's a promise. If he gave his one and only son for you, what else can he give? He is such a good God. Trust God. Don't trust yourself. I had a mate. Uh, we, we went through the college years together, and he really wanted a girlfriend. Nothing wrong with that. God says he wants to give us the desires of our hearts. And, and he kept on asking girls out, and they kept on saying no. And he was a great guy. He was, you know, just a normal, happy, healthy engineer. You know, why can't he get a girlfriend? We didn't, didn't make sense. He'd asked like 20 or 30 girls out. And they kept saying no. And this is across a couple of years. And uh, he used to talk with me all the time. We were mates. And, and, you know, every now and again, he was tempted to trust himself and not trust God. What's the one, the one test that God has put in the scripture about finding a partner? It's a very basic idea. It says, don't be unequally yoked. Find someone who has a heart for God that matches yours. Where you, you want to serve God, make sure you, the person you're going to marry wants to serve God, right? And so he decided to trust God. He didn't do, you know, the holier than thou thing where he's like, just pray and wait for a woman to turn up. Uh, he did the right thing. He'd ask girls out at the Christian club at university. He'd travel around different churches and meet people and all that. And it took a couple of years. But one day, God sent this girl. And we all marveled, I've got to tell you. <laughs> what a fantastic woman of God, God sent uh, for my mate. I'm being very careful. In the last service, I accidentally sent his name. And uh, a lot of people know him. Anyway, uh, he was an engineer at that time. What he didn't know was that he was one day going to be a pastor. And God sent him a partner who had a heart for ministry and, and they pastor a church to this day. They've got four beautiful children. And, and he had to wait years, but God's plan was perfect. It was perfect, right? And he had put it together. Am I saying that everything you pray for is going to turn out? No. God's plan is perfect, not your plan. But you can trust him. He's good. There's a beautiful passage in Scripture that says, if you ask for bread, he is not going to give you a stone. He loves you. So while you're waiting, trust that if it's not working out the way you think it should, it's better. It's better than how you think it should work out. Because God is so good. Let's get to the end of the story here. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he'd stayed in the temple so long. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs uh, to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And uh, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I, I do love this little bit here that Elizabeth didn't say, God has brought about the salvation of the universe. She said, oh, he gave me what I wanted. And that's okay. She wanted something good. She had to wait a long time. And then God gave her the desire of her heart. And she was so overjoyed. She was so overjoyed. God's doing this enormous thing, but he still cares for you and me in the small ways. What an awesome, beautiful God we serve. 
the last thing for while you're waiting is live like you know the outcome. We moved to America. My kids were five, seven, and nine. My favorite thing every year is to go on to watch the State of Origin. And whilst watching the State of Origin, I like to sledge my brothers and sisters from New South Wales. I like to be thoroughly ungracious. I like to rub salt in open wounds. It's one of my favorite pleasures, is just to be rude and obnoxious on State of Origin night when us pastors are allowed to be rude and noxious just for one night. And uh, I would go online, because I would have to get up at two or three in the morning to watch the State of Origin live over in Los Angeles and write all my comments against my old New South Welshman friends. But this thing happened was my kids got a little bit older and they wanted to watch the game with me. But I couldn't let these young kids get up at 3 a.m. to watch a game of football, so I had to be very, very sacrificial as a father. I had to watch the game later. I had to give up my desire to sledge my New South Wales friends, and I had to stay away from all electronic media for the whole day. I can't get a text. You know, my idiot friends, my brother especially, would text me, go Queensland, and they'd be like, no, because I don't want to find out the result. I want to, you know, suffer with my team bleed with my team, and uh, I have to wait the whole day until the evening, and I invite Americans over to teach them a real game of football. Sorry, Americans. And, uh, and I would, uh, we would watch the game together. But a couple of years ago, I did poorly. I accidentally just broke the habit. I flicked out my phone. I opened Instagram. Bang, there it is, the result. Oh! But Queensland had won by like 20, right? Can you imagine how I felt that day? I can't wait to get home. I'm going to put the game on. I'm going to get the popcorn. I'm going to see who bleeds, see who breaks, but see us win. Amen? The Bible tells you that while you're waiting on the Lord, you know the outcome. You know the outcome. You come in here and you can worship and your arms can go to the roof. Even if you're suffering in a sinful and broken world, you can worship from truth wholeheartedly because you know the outcome. You serve a majestically good God who is perfect in his planning, who has a wonderful design for you individually, for us collectively, for us as a church, for us as a state. He can weave every single story together. And when we get to heaven and we have understanding given to us, we're just, we're just going to stand there and go, oh my goodness, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Don't let Satan steal your joy while you're waiting for the King of Kings to move in your life. Position yourself for blessing. Know that God's plans are perfect. Trust God, not yourself. Do it His way. Do it His way. Every single morning, get up and say, not my way, Lord, your way, Lord, because you're the good one, and live like you know the outcome, because you do. Would you stand with me, church? I just want to pray an encouragement over you. I don't know where you're at on each of those four points, you may need to repent. You may need to get back in line with God's will. You may need to worship more wholeheartedly because you've forgotten how good you've got it. You might need to renounce 
the work of the evil one who's been lying into your head and telling you to turn away from the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whatever it is, I pray that you'll do business with God right now as we sing. The band are going to come up, and I'm just going to pray over you. As we worship, let's do business with the Lord. He is good. Lord Jesus, thank you for encouraging us tonight from your word, and thank you for reminding us what you're like. You are such a good God. You have everything held together. You are a mountain of strength. The whole of history is going to go your way. You are the victor. You've declared it is finished. Help us to trust you, Lord, as we wait on you for whatever it is we're praying for, whatever it is we feel we would like to see happen. Help us to trust you, to rejoice in you, and to keep following you. Pray that in your precious name. Amen.